Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. I'm Lawrence Eppard, here with my co-host, Allie Dagnus. This is part two of our Grading the News episode. In part one, we talked to Vanessa Otero, founder of AdFontes Media, known by many for their media bias chart. AdFontes Media aims to make news consumers smarter and news media better by rating the news for reliability and bias. And we had just a wonderful conversation with Vanessa Otero. If you didn't catch part one, I I hope you'll go back and and take a listen. It's really great. Another organization that helps Americans navigate the Wild West of modern media is NewsGuard. And in this part two of the Grading the News episode, we are going to talk to James Warren, who's executive editor at NewsGuard. And what's really great about NewsGuard is if you go to their website and you pay just a few dollars a month, you can get an add-on to your internet browser And every time you visit a news outlet on the internet, there's a little icon that's going to pop up on your internet browser. It's either going to be green, which gives you a pretty high level of confidence that this is a pretty trustworthy news outlet, or it's going to be red, which should give you a lot of caution about whether or not you should proceed to this particular news outlet. And you don't need to do much work beyond that. NewsGuard's done all the work for you. But if you want to, you can click on that icon and you can read the really detailed reports that they have on each one of these news outlets. And they rate these news outlets on measures of transparency and credibility. And just to give you an example of some of the measures of credibility that they use, they uh, rate the outlet on whether or not it repeatedly publishes false content, whether it gathers and presents information responsibly, whether it regularly corrects and clarifies errors, whether it handles the difference between news and opinion responsibly, and whether it avoids deceptive headlines. And Allie and I have actually used the work of NewsGuard, as well as AdFontes Media, and a third organization, AllSides, to build a long list. At this point, it has at least 100 outlets on it. But this list is of trustworthy news outlets. And news outlets are on that list if they're able to pass these three standards. Number one, they are disqualified from being on the list if they are rated outside of the most reliable green zone by AdFontes Media. Number two, they're disqualified if they're rated as hyperpartisan by either AdFontes Media or all sides. And number three, an outlet must receive high scores from NewsGuard in the areas of not publishing false content, demonstrating responsible news gathering and presentation, making frequent and prominent corrections and clarifications, demonstrating responsible news and opinion differentiation, and avoiding deceptive headlines. So NewsGuard, AdFontes Media, AllSides, these are all wonderful organizations. We are so lucky to have had just such a great conversation with Vanessa Otero. And I know we're going to have a wonderful conversation today with James Warren. So without further ado, James Warren, thank you so much for joining our show today. Hey, my pleasure on a a gorgeous morning, at least in Chicago with the rarity of sun. Um, We want to dive right in and ask you about NewsGuard. So can you explain what it is and also explain how you became um, its executive editor? What is it that you love about NewsGuard? 
NewsGuard is a um, New York-based three-year-old startup um, that was based on two notions with the uh, ultimate ambition of becoming a trusted rating service of the credibility of news and information sites. Um, one of the key premises was that there was a, a rapidly declining um, rapidly declining trust in media by Americans all over the place for lots of different reasons. More and more, whether you're a TV reporter, print reporter, especially from a, quote, mainstream outlet, uh, less and less trust in you. That was of obvious concern. Second was our uh, suspicion of the use of algorithms uh, favored by the likes of Google and um, Facebook to ferret out misinformation, not to disdain, you know, the occasional utility of algorithms, but having a firm belief in um, the uh, the journalistic uh, superiority of real human beings, real journalists who can get on the phone and as one of our co-founders, Steve Brill, likes to mention, can actually call people for comment unlike an algorithm and to say, okay, how come you don't run corrections, which you can't do with an algorithm? So that was the idea. And um, the co-founders were Steve Brill, a journalist and entrepreneur who had started um, American Lawyer Magazine in about 1979, which sort of revolutionized legal affairs reporting. And it was sort of almost a seamless segue from there for him to start Court Television, which a lot of people may probably remember from its most celebrated early um, uh, coverage of the O.J. Simpson trial. So that camera in that courtroom was run by Court TV. And that was that was huge, huge triumph for for Steve. Um, and uh, I and the other co-founder is Gordon Krovitz, who is former publisher of The Wall Street Journal. I was by this time former managing editor of the Chicago Tribune, former D.C. bureau chief of the Chicago Tribune, former chief media writer for Pointer Institute. And also by that time, co-founder of the then defunct. A uh, Chicago-based nonprofit called the Chicago News Cooperative, which had a glorious two-year um, <laughs> uh, life of doing uh, local coverage that ran in the print edition of the New York Times in the Midwest. So the New York Times had always uh, been looking for a way to do local coverage sort of on the cheap. And they heard about this idea we had. And within two weeks, they signed us up and we did two pages of Chicago content for the Midwest print edition of The New York Times twice a week. And for those two years before we went under lack of money, uh, I was also the columnist um, in the, on those New York Times pages twice a week. Um, this notion came up. These guys approached me about being executive editor. I said, that's fascinating. In my mind, this was sort of like potentially being kind of like, um, they don't use the term, but for me, it was sort of like being a, a consumer reports for the cyber age. You know, just like you might go to consumer reports and say, hey, what is the best such and such? microwave or, or refrigerator that I can trust. In theory, you would come to us to find out what would be trusted sources of information. And conversely, 
sources that you shouldn't be trusting, but to do so in a totally non-ideological way. Now, we weren't naive. We realized we were coming up with a notion in the middle of an increasingly you know, polarized time in American society, um, and that we'd probably get it from the, the left and the right. But the idea was to be as absolutely non-ideological as possible. We, To that end, we came up with nine criteria to judge websites. And we came up with nine criteria um, which all of which everybody would go, yeah, yeah, sure. You should declare who your owner is. A, you should declare if you have a corrections policy. And if you don't have a corrections policy, you should be running corrections. Uh, yeah, you should clearly label news as opposed to advertising and sponsored content. All totally obvious. One or two more uh, trickier ones. You know, do you uh, gather and report news responsibly? Uh, there are things that one can have uh, debates on. But but by and large, you would look at our criteria and go, well, so the idea was to simply impose those nine criteria and do real reporting on websites. And about three years ago, we started and um, we had thought that we'd be able to partner with the likes of Facebook and Google. And we're pretty smart. We're, we're fairly smart folks. And Brill and Krovitz are fairly smart, very smart. And lots and lots of meetings with Google and Facebook all over the world. I mean, Silicon Valley and London and Brussels and there and there and everywhere. And it never happened uh, because ultimately we found out, I think, what's fairly obvious that neither of them had any great desire to have a third party assessing the quality of their content on their platforms uh, because... They don't want to be seen as media. They want to be seen as just platforms. So maybe racist stuff or anti-Semitic stuff or Holocaust denying stuff. Uh, you know, they're just a platform. <laughs> um, interestingly enough, totally different corporate culture at Microsoft, which partnered with us very quickly. And so they are a partner. Um, and that's sort of where it's at. We were about 20 or so people. Uh, you get assigned a particular, uh, what we call a label, nutritional label, but a site, and then you do the, the work on it and you write a draft and then there's really rigorous editing. I mean, there'll be three, four or five people who'll be editing each thing and we'll have discussion and we'll have debate. And is it fair when it comes to, you know, Fox News or CNN or this TV station and Fargo's website, is it fair to be saying this? And and Brill and Krovitz ultimately edit absolutely everything that we do, along with myself and some other people. So they have seen each one of the 6,100 labels we have done, 6,100 wow. in the U.S., U.K., France, Germany, and Italy. And in France, Germany, and Italy... It's all the more complicated because we're doing it first in English so that us guys who don't speak those languages can understand. And then we've got um, uh, some of our staff in those places um, are then translating it, but only after we've given final approval. So this morning or yesterday morning, I was editing a, a pretty awful Italian site, awful because it's not credible. And I was dealing with a freelancer in Rome uh, 
who was updating this and I was editing it in English and I was sending it back to him in Rome with my questions and he's going to get it back to me today. And once I am okay with it, it will go up the ladder to Brill and Krovitz who will do a final edit of the English language uh, draft. Um, and then when we're all okay with it, We'll send it back to him to be translated uh, into Italian and then post it. So, so that's where where we're at. And um, we've done 6,100. If there's any uh, surprise to us, uh, we're all political junkies. And we assume that our great service to the world was going to be to um, tell the world about all the political stuff they can trust and all the political stuff they can't trust. And what increasingly... Uh, uh, surprised us in our first year or so was the number of sites which we were rating thumbs down to, or what we call a red label, not because of political misinformation, but because of health misinformation. And this was before the pandemic, before the pandemic. So we were coming across site after site after site with crazy cures for your pancreatic cancer and crazy stories against vaccinations and how apricot pits were going to cure your cancer and this and that. And we're finally going, whoa, this is an amazing amount of uh, health misinformation and decided to come up with a, a product called HealthGuard which we would position separately. That was just our work on health dominated sites. And uh, then came the pandemic. And a lot of these sites seamlessly segue to misinformation about the pandemic, whether it's the origins of the virus or how you can, uh, 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 you know, uh, treat the virus. And we ended up getting a lot of attention for some of this work including piquing the interest of somebody who then became a, a partner with us, which is the World Health Organization. So the World Health Organization was really impressed by our work. And so they're a partner and they get out our stuff and um, which has been very uh, gratifying. And then we've gotten some different hospital groups, most notably Mount Sinai in New York, which is a famous actually hospitals, plural I grew up in New York City. I just knew of Mount Sinai Hospital. Now Mount Sinai is about six or seven hospitals in New York City on Long Island. And so as part of our deal, they're giving our health-related uh, assessments free to their doctors and staff and offering it to their patients, too. Um, so that's nice. And finally, uh, a really satisfying response from librarians. So we're in about 750 libraries, 750 in the U.S. and Europe. So it ranges from the city of Chicago to Palo Alto, California, to Dayton, Ohio, to all the computers in the state of Hawaii library system. So you go into a library in, you know, I don't know, Honolulu, and, um, you know, our stuff is embedded on um, on the computers there. So, you know, that's where we're at. We've gotten lots of nice publicity and references of late in places like the New York Times, which sort of matter of factly refers to us almost as if we're, you know, we're just assumed to be 
these uh, totally tr- trustworthy folks. And, you know, there'll be a sentence that three quarters of the way through a story saying, blah, 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 according to NewsGuard, comma, which rates the credibility of news and fish sites, which is kind of cool. It's almost like saying, according to the National Weather Service. Uh, now, that said, I wish we were, uh, you know, a lot better known and we're, you know, we're working on that. Um, but, you know, we're still alive three years into it and, um, you know, still creating some sort of controversy. Uh, the other day, there's a famous, famous London uh, political satire magazine and investigative magazine called Private Eye. And they've been around forever and ever and ever and ever. And uh, most of their stuff is is uh, unattributed. But their record for uh, for being trustworthy is pretty significant. So a lot of folks in the know for decades and decades read Private Eye. And there was some mess the other day with a story involving the independent newspaper. And they were poking fun at the independent for screwing something up. I don't know what it was about. Meghan Markle. I, I, I literally can't remember. But. Their shot that they took at the independent, including the concluded the fact that we have given them a hundred percent positive rating, uh, and you know. But anyway, it was neat that we were referenced by them saying, "Oh, the independent, which gets a hundred from NewsGuard, you know, messed up this particular story." Blah blah blah. So um, you know that was that was kind of nice. So that's where we're at. We're still very small. We're about maybe twenty five people. Uh, we were based in an office on West 52nd Street in Manhattan. And now, like every other business, we're all over the place. So our Zoom calls in the morning, uh, our staff meetings, I mean, we got people all over. We got, you know, we got three or four of us in Chicago. Most everybody's in the New York area. But we also have folks in, you know, Rome and Paris uh, and, and you know, Berlin, uh, who are working for us and and doing the heavy duty work on the on the European stuff. So that's basically, you know, where we're at. I think a pretty noble pursuit, doing pretty good work, and uh, you know, just could use a little bit more attention, and hoping ultimately that there's a real bona fide true market for non ideological information. And there are some days where I think. Yes, there is. And there's some days where I just want to go to the tallest building and jump off because I go, oh, no, maybe there isn't. Maybe people don't really care. I also worry a great deal about how much of an appetite Americans have for non-ideological information, how much of an appetite they have for just good information in general, how much they're willing to support good newspapers, good news outlets, support folks like NewsGuard and AdFontes Media. Um, and, and if not what that's going to mean for this vital, vital industry and what that means for our democracy as a whole. I was on a zoom call yesterday when there's a group of geezers like me in Chicago who meet, well, we used to meet for lunch, a brown bag lunch in a law firm conference room once every couple of months and have a, 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 you know, some esteemed person as a guest physically in the room. Now it's all Zoom. And and yesterday, our guest was Marty Barron, who just left as editor of the Washington, retired as editor of the Washington Post. And it really is staggering to be reminded that, you know, when he got there, 
before a year before Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post, I mean, they were in trouble. And, um, you know, he made clear that his marching orders included further layoffs in his first year. And he had no clue what was up as far as Donald Graham trying to sell it. And so the day that they announced Bezos, it was a complete surprise to him. And so, you know, they've gone from something like 600 people and a declining newsroom to they're going to be over a thousand by this year Um, and gone from basically nobody subscribing to their uh, their uh, basically from no online subscriptions to about three million now, three million. And, And same thing with The New York Times, everybody knows. I mean, they just crazy number of online subscriptions in the Wall Street Journal, but that ain't that ain't replicated anywhere else. That ain't replicated in Chicago or northern Michigan or southern Idaho. And, you know, one of the questions which we asked him, which he couldn't answer is, you know, why? Um, you know, what do you do about local media? And uh, I mean, local media that aren't named the New York Times, Washington Post or Wall Street Journal. And he admitted he didn't know. He just didn't know what the the answer was. And one of the, you know, illuminating things is I just so happens in the last week, I've been doing updates of a lot of our assessments of local, really local news sites, like local TV stations. Like this morning, I was doing a bunch of TV stations all over the place and and newspapers in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and, and Portland, Maine, and all over. And without knowing, um, you over time, and you look at a lot of these, and as many as we have, you can just sense there are fewer and fewer people or few people in those newsrooms. And I mean, there was one the other day, it was like one reporter, and that was it. And, and occasionally, where I've got to reach out to them to have a question answered. How come your site doesn't disclose ownership or am I missing it? Or how come I can't find any correction in the last year posted? Am I missing something? And you go to the staff directory and that staff directory is really small. Anyway, it's a problem and it's obviously linked to lots of other issues like the state of the education system. Um, So I was really, really, really happy the other day to spend some time with a librarian at a local Catholic high school here um, who is so big on what we do, he has incorporated it with the head of the school into their curriculum to the extent that the librarian goes to um, lots of different classes, whether it's botany or humanities or history, and helps kids with how to better research these subjects. And one of the tools, one of many tools that he suggests is NewsGuard in helping these kids differentiate between what they can trust and what they can't trust, which is no small problem, even in a school like this, which is pretty, pretty impressive school called DePaul College Prep here in Chicago. And where the librarian is very open about these kids who are, you know, high school freshmen, sophomores and juniors and don't distinguish between the New York Times and some crazy Yahoo video that they've seen. It's it all sort of kind of looks the same to them, which is, I mean, it's a real challenge education system. And, you know, we're, we're trying what we can, but it's, uh, it's not easy. There are lots of politics 
And all you need is one person on a school board to go, wait a second, that's a liberal paper or that's a conservative paper or something like that. And then people don't want to, you know, don't want to touch you. So no matter how empirical you are about CNN or Fox News or, or whatever the site might be, if it has a particular political orientation, um, there are going to be people who are bashing you. One of the things that's really, really impressive about NewsGuard is just how many sites you have rated. And it's not just the top you know, national sites, not just the top you know, international news sites, not just major regional newspapers, but lots of niche publications, you know, sports publications, finance, et cetera. You know, could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, obviously, one of the, the reasons for the decline of general interest local newspaper, for instance, is the coming, which the newspaper industry, I think, was very naive about, the coming of lots of really specialized niche publications. And whether it's sports or finance or entertainment or the law, I mean, there are lots of or foreign affairs. I mean, you know, you look at foreign policy magazine or foreign affairs magazine, if you're interested in, in, in that world, and it's really top notch stuff. Um, similarly, you know, I don't look at the Chicago newspaper sports sections in the way I did because I'm now um, subscribing to The Athletic. The Athletic, which is a niche sports site, which began in Chicago with what would seem to me the crazy, naive notion that you could build a business by catering to supposedly underserved Chicago Blackhawks hockey fans. That's where The Athletic started in Chicago because someone had the notion that the papers weren't covering the Blackhawks enough. And I always thought there were just like 15,000 crazy Blackhawk fans. That was it. And they fill the arena every game, whether the team was good or bad. Um, and these guys were apparently correct that there was this voracious appetite for more and more stuff on the Chicago Blackhawks. And then they came up with the idea of doing other teams and then other cities and so now they're all over the place and they have come up with a business model. And I guess they got lots of folks like me who are paying whatever we're paying. I don't know, 60, 70 bucks a year, whatever it costs. And they've hired lots of really, really good people. I mean, there are lots of when I look at the Chicago stuff, I go, oh, yeah, he used to work at the Tribune. Or he used to work at the Sun-Times. And I guess they're paying a living wage and giving these guys a leeway to, to write a lot more stuff. And it's, it's, it's pretty sophisticated, but you, you find that all over say sports. I mean, if you're a baseball nut, I mean, there are sites which just have all this sabermetric statistical analyses. And here's why this trade was a bad trade. Cause this guy threw, you know, 30% of the curveballs he threw last year when the temperature was 70 degrees uh, in opposing stadiums were hit for home runs. You go, Oh my God. But I, there is, I guess, a, a market for all the specialized stuff. And you see it in lots of other different topics. And one of the uh, questions we have right now, for instance, involves one of those topics, which is personal finance. Should we start rating personal finance sites? And we, we're, it's something we're discussing. And they're, it, they're, it's tricky. And, uh, you know, the ownership issues, which are intriguing, you know, to what extent are there, you know, uh, ulterior motives in the folks who own these sites in trying to, 
you know, gin up business and things like that? Would it be a public service for us to do that? And if we decided to do it, what sort of staffing would we need? Um, I mean, it's just, it's a giant, giant world out there, whatever topics you take. So anyway, I would say there's more junk out there, but there's also way more good stuff than you have ever found before. And, you know, we're one tool in trying to ferret out what that good stuff is. You know, I I want to get your impression about the growing polarization of the political information ecosystems. Increasingly, we're just moving in the direction of not political disagreement, but actual disagreement about what is a fact. Yeah. And um, and so you've 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 been in the news for a long time and, and obvious changes are are very apparent as you look to the future where do you see the country going in terms of this this big divide that we currently have yeah well in the short term i don't i don't i see it probably getting a worse than better i mean this inability to even agree on basic facts is something we're we're seeing every day i mean we're sort of the ground level looking at websites uh, which are expanding, looking at the coming now. One of the subjects of our discussion this morning was what do we do with the increasing popularity of platforms like Parler um, that people are that people are gravitating toward? Do we start rating stuff that we find there? I mean, it was just it was sort of an opening discussion for us because we've been sort of mostly focused on Google, Facebook, and now come these new entities. Um, which clearly have a particular um, a political drift, and how are we going to handle that? We don't know. We literally just started the discussion this morning, literally this morning. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think in the, the uh, it's an ecosystem which I think is going to get more polarized rather than less, and one can only hope that over time there are some cultural course corrections, maybe, but over time, I mean, I mentioned to you before about, you know, my interest in the education system um, and the teaching of media literacy. And we've had some successes like that school that I, I mentioned. And, uh, it, you know, I know a couple of teachers at a couple other schools who use us uh, in their classes as a way of, of getting kids to begin to appreciate the difference between stuff they can trust and they can't trust. But I'm, 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 I'm not a, I'm not going to be Pollyannish and thinking that uh, there are lots of, there's lots of circumstantial evidence out there for turning the tide because there's not. And you look at, you know, what the success is of a couple of the relatively new conservatives say news outlets like which see Fox is too liberal or something, you know, like uh, Newsmax. Um, and they've got pretty good audiences and they're getting pretty good audiences online. And a lot of their stuff is being shared online. So um, it's, uh, you know, I think it's a problem. It's going to be with us for a long time. Um, and there doesn't look to be any hope for any sort of regulatory or governmental action in this country in the way we have found one has in Europe. There's much greater sympathy for what we're doing in Europe than there is in the U.S. For us, namely NewsGuard. 
And, you know, we've had much better reception at places like the European Union and even the British government run by Boris Johnson than we've had in the U.S. We go up to Capitol Hill and people, you know, they don't like regulation and, oh, you know, it's just a way of, of trying to beat down conservative opinion and stuff like that. So it's just it's a different it's a different ethos, political and governmental ethos here. Even though, you know, you see, you know, moves by the Biden administration or articulation of some, uh, you know, uh, misgivings about what's going on at Facebook, particularly and and Google. Um, but it's uh, it's it's a long it's a long, long term problem with lots of, I think, cultural and educational components to it. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll see, we hope that, you know, that there is a place for a consumer reports of, of the cyber age, which would be trusted in the same way, which would be, um, you know, part of, you know, academic, uh, curriculum, but, um, we'll see. We did an episode with Michael Anthony Dees, who was a former editor at the Chicago Tribune. Now he is a uh, faculty member at Northwestern University, and he helped our listeners understand the various levels of fact checking that newspapers do. So the ways in which reporters uh, look for a variety of sources to verify information and then how that goes up the chain to editors who then also verify that information and that really um you know, the confidence you can have in that kind of process of verification. Could you talk a little bit about the work that NewsGuard does in terms of verifying the facts of the stories that you are evaluating? We have, we do, you know, I think pretty rigorous fact checking when we are checking stories on sites, whether those are true. Um, we've done a huge amount of fact checking on the coronavirus. And if you go to our site, uh, uh, newsguardtech.com, you will see special reports we've done and reports like not just on election myths during the 2020 election, but also on coronavirus myths, among other reports. And in each case, you know, we've gone down to, you know, primary source level and to find out, is that did the CDC really say that? Or did the French government really say that? And we just do the, 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 the tough, difficult work of making phone calls and going to those places and reading 50 or 100 page reports or reading, you know, uh, uh, some medical journal report that is cited as proving that, uh, you know, apricot pits will cure your cancer and going to find out and going to read that drudgery of a report to see whether it actually did say that. So, I mean, there's, there's no circumventing that old fashioned, difficult, you know, act of reporting. I mean, it's difficult and it's boring. And, but if you're going to say that somebody erroneously said something on their site, you got, you, you, you got to say what proof you've got. And you simply just can't Google and say, well, you know, USA Today said that this wasn't true and based on such and such a report. I mean, you've got to go and look at that report yourself. Thanks for that explanation. When I've looked at your methodology online, it's clear that it's extremely rigorous. And so 
you know, everything that you've just explained just confirms that. Now, you spent a number of years in the newspaper industry. Could you talk to our listeners a little bit about the work that reporters do to verify facts, as well as the work that their editors do then to go behind them and double check those facts and verify those facts? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's obviously great investigative work being done. And I mean, if you just take a look at some of the big prize competitions and you'll see, and they're not all just won by the New York Times and Washington Post, which have tons of folks, but you have people doing, you know, work on really tricky, difficult stuff, whether it's legislative corruption in a state or national security problems and who are, um, you know, doing this granular reporting and double and triple and quadruple checking what they're doing because they know, especially in a litigious world, in a world in which, you know, Hulk Hogan can bring a whole media company down, that you better get your stuff right. And, you know, whether it's the the fear of religious gods or, or um, you know, just their own um, high-minded, uh, honorable, reflexive principles, that a tremendous amount of hard, difficult legwork is being done. I mean, I, you know, you look at the the New York Times work in a lot of areas like uh, Me Too movement, really tricky, difficult subject of, of sexual harassment and sexual violence. And, you know, the, the, the challenges of corroborating stories and allegations in, in, in that world, that work was a really impressive and that work both in New York Times, I think the New Yorker magazine um, was, uh, you know, a testament to old fashioned legwork and double and triple and quadruple checking with, you know, battery of lawyers hovering over every line. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of stuff I see, which is, um, you know, a, a tribute to great fact checking and quadruple checking what people said and not accepting at face value the reporting on something by anybody else. Got to go check it yourself. And it can be incredibly boring and it can be incredibly tedious. And it's why people may want to prefer to be columnists where they can spout off their two cents rather than get into the weeds of the sort of stuff we're doing, which is checking 20 different reports by the CDC to see if they really ever said what a particular site claims they said about the coronavirus and what you should and shouldn't do and what they have said and haven't said about uh, vaccines or what a German newspaper claims was the conclusion of some uh, medical trial involving a, 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 a coronavirus vaccine. It, it, you got you to go to the actual report of the trial, medical trial, and that's not fun. That can be the hours of work and hours of reading, and it can be checking out a footnote which may uh, contradict the thesis of a study. 
So, I mean, it's, it's tough work. Yeah. That sounds like a ton of work. It sounds <laughs> quite frankly, like it can be pretty boring and pretty tedious. And I am very happy that we have reporters at some of these big papers, you know, the wall street journal, New York times, Washington post, et cetera, doing some of this really important work for, for our society. I remember in the early eighties, covering what was a big, sexy criminal trial at the time in which the head of the Teamsters Union uh, was accused of bribing a United States senator, essentially a conspiracy to bribe him and a bunch of other folks, conspiracy to bribe a U.S. senator from the state of Nevada. It had to do with the whole tricky issue of trucking deregulation. The Teamsters obviously had a big foothold in trucking. Um, they had really, their power had come very much from taking what back in the forties and fifties was this very discriminated and underpaid group, long haul truckers, unionizing them and being a real tough, uh, uh, counterforce to employers and getting good contracts, better benefits, much more greater safety measures instituted on behalf. Anyway, Jimmy Carter comes into power and the whole issue of trucking deregulation comes up. Trucking industry is deregulated. uh, And the government alleged that the Teamsters tried to um, bribe this Nevada senator who was head of the the time, the Senate Commerce Committee, uh, which had oversight over trucking deregulation. Anyway, so... uh, I sit through this whole trial, and one of the things that starts hitting me is the role of the senator himself, a guy named Howard Cannon. And why wasn't he indicted? Because he seemed to be no innocent victim to me. And it's not something you would have thought when you read the initial indictment a year or two earlier. Teamster leader, you know, indicted for attempting to bribe the Nevada senator. Well, this Nevada senator was no, you know, naive simpleton. He was a pretty sophisticated guy and knew what was going on. So I'm just saying that's the sort of thing that that sort of level of nuance, which ultimately is a matter of fairness and objectivity, which can only you know, come to you if you've done an extraordinary amount of work and step back and be willing to um, perhaps question your own preconceptions um, of which you went into a story. Because we're humans. And if you're an investigative reporter, you will start looking into something. And more often than not, you'll have a kind of certain thesis that you've got about what was going on here. I mean, it's it's what might drive you to be spending hundreds and hundreds of hours looking into something. But you've got to be honest enough to get to a point where you may occasionally get to where the facts that you've um, accumulated don't quite fit what might have been a preordained thesis. Um, and one of the guys I work with, Steve Brill, who's also a, a been a very successful author. He, he's that old fashioned type of reporter. And I've helped edit some of his books, including on the, the healthcare system where he just let the, you know, he just followed the facts. 
And if you listen to some of our meetings, uh, you'll find out that he is just sort of brutally, can be brutally dispassionate. And you'd have a tough time figuring out what his politics were. You know, whether he voted for Obama or whether he voted for John McCain or whether he voted for Biden or whether he voted for Trump, you have a hard time as we assess sites every day because he's just asking very pointed question. Like, is cheating the same thing as stealing? Why are we using the word stealing in this uh, in this uh, uh, review of this website, which has stories about Stacey Abrams and the Georgia Senate election? Is it correct to use the word steal? We had a 20 minute discussion. And, you know, uh, somebody might have thought, well, he can't possibly be a, a Democrat. I mean, he's making the case against sort of against Stacey Abrams uh, uh, characterization, but nothing to do with his politics. It's just everything to do with his sort of journalist essence, which is why this can be kind of a lonely business if you do it correctly, because you end up pissing off lots of different people. <laughs> uh, I've always I've done a lot of television, a lot of TV punditry. Uh, particularly when I was a Washington bureau chief. And um, it always uh, pleased me when people would come up to me on the street and say they couldn't quite figure out my politics. I can't quite figure you out. Well, I know Pat Buchanan and this guy, I don't understand their politics when you're on with them, but I can't. And that was always a source of um, satisfaction to me. It's interesting as the years have gone by and cable news particularly has become more polarized it's that has struck me as not quite as much an advantage as it once was, because you can just sense when bookers ask you, well, what do you think of such and such? And he starts out, well, I think there's a lot of gray. And it's sort of like, hmm, that kind of doesn't, we'd rather have you on one side or the other to make for good television, you know? So um, that's, um, that's a changing sign of the times. And it's also about the increasing polarization in the country and how the, I think the media sometimes are our own worst enemies and, you know, the whole cable news paradigm of thinking that if you have one person on this side, one person that side, and they yell at one another, somehow the truth will come out. I never, I, I never got that. I never, never believed that. But I also know that, um, there are a lot more people looking at Fox News and MSNBC and CNN than old are looking at C-SPAN. I'm a C-SPAN junkie. I love C-SPAN. You get smart people talking for an hour about a subject they know something about, but that's not great television. You know, you'd rather have two people yelling at one another about Donald Trump. Well, I'm a I'm a C-SPAN alumnus. So uh, I was a producer there for five years. And um, and so I think it's great TV. But actually, I know that it's also very boring because (laughs) I I will go on my battered old elliptical trainer in the basement Mm -hmm. and I will take out my laptop and go to C-SPAN and check out one of my favorite programs of all time, which was my friend, Brian Lamb, the founder of C-SPAN's, was called Book Notes. Oh, sure. Now it's, now it's something a little larger called Q&A. But I will look at 20-year-old, hour-long author interviews 
But I also know if you suggested that to CNB to to MSNBC, Fox, or or um, CNN, well, let's have someone on for an hour on a subject. They go, what? Can't do that. What is your favorite fictional depiction of journalism? Oh, I think it'd be well. F- 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 most fun is the front page. Um, most gripping. Maybe we spoke about Marty Baron, uh, now retired into the Washington Post before, but the the movie is it called Spotlight, based on the Boston Globe reporting. Um, I love that movie. I mean, that was dramatic stuff. I mean, it doesn't get any more primal than that. Of you know, knocking on a door and trying to find out about the actions of a priest or knocking on the door and trying to, you know, get that priest to say why he had been, you know, moved from the parish in Boston to somewhere in the middle of nowhere and to confront, um, you know, one of, in this case, New England's most powerful institutions at the time, the Catholic church. Um, So I'd say those two, um, I loved when it comes to, I don't know, I guess you'd call it sort of foreign reporting. What was the great movie Sam Waterston was in? Um, about Killing Fields. The Killing Fields. Yeah, I thought, I think I'd put that up there. I think yesterday, the day before, was the day of, of the My Lai Massacre, famous uh, uh, atrocity during the Vietnam War. And, you know, that it was due to the absolute obsessiveness of a, a then unknown reporter named Seymour Hirsch that that all came to light. I mean, that's just a reminder of just the honorable, courageous stuff that to answer your question that some of these movies get into, which I think reminds one of the most noble aspects of this business and their importance to democracy and an and its importance in holding institutions, whether it's the Catholic Church or the U.S. government or the county board, holding them accountable. And, you know, we would not be the country we are with all our problems, admittedly, um, without this institution of journalism playing a significant role. And so to get sort of get back to the the first question, you know, I do hope that those folks who are doing this sort of great work um, are not just acknowledged, but respected by the folks who are trying to figure out what are trustworthy sources of information and trustworthy uh, sources on which they can base, you know, their opinions on, on various subjects. All right. Before we go, I got to ask this question because I know everybody listening, at least at some point during this interview has thought about this. So, uh, any websites that score really, really poorly? <laughs> Infowars gets uh, gets a red, and we've got lots of got hundreds of sites that have gotten, you know, uh, red and things like Zero Hedge. Here's here's an example. You know, if the question is, what things should you trust? You shouldn't trust a site such as which has pretty large audience, like ZeroHedge.com. Um, it's a political and financial blog 
with a distinctly pro-Russia perspective that just is filled with false information and conspiracy theories. And if you look at our analysis, you'll see examples of how it repeatedly publishes false content. It gathers information irresponsibly. It doesn't disclose who its owners are. It doesn't disclose you know, who's in charge and whether any possible conflicts of interest. And it doesn't give you any information about who's writing the stories. Who are these people? Um, you know, and, you know, we've done a lot on various, uh, you know, Russian government sites and Russian government funded sites. Um, you know, RT is a, is a, is a big one. And they, you know, they're, a you know, they've got a, you know, they, they've got a big Washington, um, operation and, um, you know, we've, we've done a lot of, uh, you know, assessing, of them. And that's another one that you got to proceed with, with real caution. Uh, it was RT America is a, um, you know, 24 hour TV news channel. And what really is a Russian government disinformation vehicle. It was, it was, it had a different name before uh, it was called Russia today. Now it's RT.com. And people have done, good pieces on them. 60 Minutes did a piece on them, I think, but it repeatedly publishes false content. Uh, it doesn't, you know, avoid deceptive headlines. It doesn't handle the difference in news and opinion responsibly. So yeah, you should avoid them, even though they've got, you know, a lot of folks looking at them and they've been fairly potent when it comes to distribution by social media. And they'll have a lot of sexy looking stories. Um, you should be careful when it comes to them. Jim Warren, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I feel smarter and better just for our conversation. Guys, my absolute pleasure and my apology, though it may not make it into the final version of this being interrupted by having to kiss my wife and 11-year-old goodbye as they headed off on a spring break road trip. <laughs> no, we like that stuff. It it, it humanizes people, right? <laughs> my, my, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows and more. That's utterlymoderatenetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, we'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet
happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you till we meet again. Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.